Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetic biology, and more, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, and the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, and even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is the emergence of fusion energy. Our guest is Andrew Holland, CEO of the Fusion Industry Association. In this conversation, we talk about the driving forces, the startups, the role of industry associations, the risks involved, and the regulatory uncertainties, also uh, the impact of climate change and industry supply chains. If you're new to the show, check out futurize.org slash episodes with collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and you can check them out at futurize.org slash sponsors. And you can also consider sponsoring the podcast or partnering with us yourself. Before you do anything else, please make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Andrew, welcome. How are you? Great, Tron. Great to be with you. Yeah, Andrew. So <clears throat> we're going to talk about uh, the the end game here. That's uh, <laughs> that's an exciting thing. That's right. <laughs> the ultimate energy source. That's right. So the emergence of fusion energy has been, uh, you know, a long and troubled process. Uh, let, let's uh, just figure out when you got into it, because, you, you know, it's not super apparent from your background in history and economics and and even in international strategy um, right. or even as a legislative assistant to, to Chuck Hagel, the senator. Right. Uh, perhaps more so in your career throughout the think tank sphere. I, I can kind of s- slowly start to understand it. And then now as the CEO of the Fusion Industry Association, there, there is a different story here that can't be read from your CV. Well, what, what might that be, Andrew? Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, I got into Fusion uh, over a decade ago as a, you know, we talked about the ultimate energy source. Well, what we were looking for was the solution here. Uh, I was working at a think tank called the American Security Project at the time that did a lot of work on energy security, climate change, impacts on of all those things on national security, scientific leadership for America. And, you know, we, we really didn't like the option set that was out there for what was the solution to these problems? You know, is the solution put a cap and trade or a, you know, carbon tax on? And it's like, well, yeah, that's that's sort of a elegant policy option. But at the same time, it didn't seem like the be all end all. And so we went looking around and fusion was. And at that time, about 10 years ago, it was the beginnings of what we've seen now of, you know, some more optimism into fusion, some excitement that the final goal of getting to break even energy and ultimately uh, the ultimate energy source 
was at least it, it, at this point in sight. You know, we could see the light at the end of the tunnel and with sustained effort, we thought we could get there. So I wrote a paper about it uh, back yeah, about 10 years ago. Uh, and in writing that paper and then going around and talking about it around Washington and to fusion scientists and, and such like that, I got to know a lot of the players. And uh, I think, you know, the fusion scientists were excited because nobody really had talked to them uh, outside of other fusion scientists for a long time. And, you know, the Department of Energy Office of Science. So uh, so to have interest from the outside got me in as a trusted advisor, as somebody who could could talk to the group. And, you know, while, while at the time I was ultimately unsuccessful in arguing for increased public funding for fusion, it did uh, catalyze, I think, a lot of the the ideas about going private about fusion, going into the, the private space. And so as the private companies came about, uh, I helped work with them through ARPA-E and through other you know, parts of the government and, and everything such that when it was time to um, make an association, uh, I was the guy who'd been around the longest. <laughs> Part of it is just the old Woody Allen saying, you know, 80 percent of life is showing up. So <laughs> when was this, Andrew, the the association, the founding of the. Uh, yeah. So, so it became a uh, we went public with the association as an initiative of the American Security Project, so a part-time job uh, in the fall of 2018. Uh, and at that point, I think we had about 15 member companies and you know a, just a small group, and, and it really wasn't something that could be uh, a sustainable uh, independent association. It was only in May of last year, May of 2021, that uh, there was enough support um, to to make the association a real standalone independent organization with, you know, consultants and lawyers and everything that, that goes along with, with all of that. So, so I'm curious, uh, you know, about the association, but I just wanted to point out uh, something that you told me when we talked earlier that uh -huh. back in middle school, you actually went to a field trip to a Princeton tokamak test reactor. Yeah. I don't think everybody has done that. And, and, you know, as we'll get into the technology a little bit, you know, these tokamaks, which we'll get into, I guess, extensively, they're pretty impressive yeah. infrastructure. So and do you think that that, in retrospect, kind of stayed in the back of your mind? You know, or? maybe in the back of your mind. I, I, I only kind of remembered it a couple of years into you know, actually working on this. I think actually when, when I went up and toured uh, the Princeton f facility a few years ago and saw, saw what's, what's been done since then. Of course, uh, yeah, so, so TFTR was built in the 80s, turned on in the 90s. There was, there was huge uh, headlines in the New York Times, all of the big newspapers about the, the, the great work that was done. And then, of course, it was dismantled in the 1990s and, you know, no successor uh, machine has been built yet, uh, either in the United States or around the world. So it, it was a big thing, and 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 yeah, I, I guess I looking back on it, uh, it was pretty cool as a you know twelve or thirteen year old to to walk an, around and see this this big big fusion machine. So Andrew, I'm not just bringing this up because it kind of brings up your childhood, but it also evokes a point I wanted to address before we get to the exciting part, which is 
it kind of has been everybody's bad joke, right? right? That fusion is the ultimate energy source, which is always 40 years away or right. whatever the saying goes. <laughs> yeah, That's that a lot of fun ago. as a joke, yeah. but it's not so fun for you in the fusion industry. Yeah, yeah let, me, let me say I've heard that joke before. <laughs> this, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I just I let, let's get it out of there. Yeah, bag. Let, get it out yeah. of there. And and you know that there's two things about science, and I, I think this is actually really important to bring out. Um, scientific breakthroughs, scientific engineering, they don't just happen because of some genius sitting in a lab working on his own. They are a product of a huge ecosystem of scientists, engineers, breakthroughs, all of this, people standing on the shoulders of giants. So, so it is in that respect, it's time, but it's also a function of money. And so when people say 30 years away and always will be, I always say, well, 30 years and how much money away. And so, so it's really important to draw out the fact that, you know, in 1980, Congress passed the Fusion Energy Act which said that we would have uh, a pilot plant, pilot fusion plant by 2000. Uh, and obviously people will say, well, that never happened. So, so it must all be, you know, fake or flawed or something like that. But then if you look at the amount of money that Congress authorized to spend on building that, uh, all the science and everything building up to the fusion pilot plant, there was a, a number of different trajectories. And ranging from a Manhattan Project type approach to, you know, high sustained effort, medium sustained effort, low effort, eventually leading to it. And then there was also, there's a chart that says fusion never. And in reality, you can track that uh, actual U.S. government spending on fusion tracks below that fusion never number. So we've, we've done just enough in the U.S. government funding to, uh, to keep the fusion program going, to keep important, uh, you know, important programs going, important scientists involved. But it's been, you know, trying to make a major breakthrough for humanity, essentially on the cheap. And that ain't going to work. Right. So, so let's, let's take this a little bit from the beginning and let's work it up to, to the, the excitement that is in the industry now. Let's talk about this year's report that just came out from your association, you know, because there's been an influx of, of money now from more the private sector, which is yeah. very exciting. And, and, and then some startups that are really, really path-breaking uh, potentially. Yeah. But let, let's just cover some bases here. Uh, you know, what is fusion energy and what is a tokamak? So yeah, what kind of a technology is this and why are you saying that it's the end of all energy yeah, uh, so, sources? So uh, this is, um, so fusion is, is a, uh, a process that we've known about since the 1920s. It is uh, the power of the sun. So, so literally Einstein's equation, E equals MC squared. Uh, taken and applied to to real life. So um, what you do for a fusion reaction, unlike fission, our, our cousins, uh, in a fusion reaction, you take light elements and then at extreme temperatures and pressures, you push them together and they fuse. In that process, they release a little bit of, um, of matter as energy. And the fact that uh, the, the E equals MC squared shows that just a tiny little bit of matter when turned into energy is a huge amount of energy. 
So it is uh, what we're trying to do here on Earth is essentially create little baby suns. And the problem is that creating by by creating a baby sun, we don't have the one thing that the sun's got going for it that creates the fusion in it. And that's just a huge amount of mass. So it's gravity that creates fusion in the sun. Uh, at the center of the sun, it, there's such a, a extreme pressures and temperatures caused by the the mass uh, the massive amount of uh, of gas up there in in a plasma that it just creates fusion. So we can't replicate that. Uh, what we can do is get up to those temperatures and pressures with things like magnets or lasers or electric currents, or, you know, there's, there's actually multiple different approaches and ideas of how to get up to that. But you have to get it up to about 100 million degrees C or more uh, to, to replicate those fusion conditions, 10 times, something like 10 times the, the temperature of, of the surface of the sun. So extreme temperatures uh, or pressures to get there. And, uh, and, and so it's a challenge. It is, it's legitimately hard to do. And we do do it. We do fusion all the time, all around the, the world. Um, but we haven't yet gotten to the point where we get more energy out than the energy that, that we go in to, to initiate the reaction and to contain it. So the magnet or the lasers or things like that. So to your point about the family tree, and we'll get into that, um, one big part of this family tree is the tokamak, yes. which I've mentioned a couple of yes, times, let's but yeah. let's just get to that. So the tokamak, uh, as far as I understand it, it is a device that uses in particular magnets and it's a yes. contained device that looks a little bit, uh, I don't know, like a donut shape right. that confines plasma, which is a whole other concept in fusion that maybe okay. a little bit, yeah. you know, if you're a physicist, it's very clear. Uh, and the shape is a torus. And yes. so the, this tokamak, uh, is expensive to build and has a, a kind of a mythical role. Yeah. What can you tell us about the tokamak and yeah. where does that fit in the family so tokamak, of, of these? So tokamak, first, it's it's kind of a funny name, right? So it's, it's a Russian name. It's a Russian acronym. And it was back in the early days, the 1950s, 1960s, when people were innovating around fusion, um, the Russians came up with the tokamak. Uh, and their, their reported temperatures and, and pressures and, and uh, results from it were so outstanding that, that people kind of didn't believe them. They thought it was a Cold War you know, hoax or something like that. So there's this famous story of the, uh, some scientists from the UK at the height of the Cold War going over with diagnostic devices into Russia, into the Soviet Union to, to see how they were working. And then as as they came back and said, yes, this works. And yes, this is uh, getting results. Pretty much everyone around the world then said, okay, right. We're going to, we're going to start trying to figure out how to do tokamaks because we know that this is a way to move forward. So at this point now, here we are, you know, 40, 50 years after that, the tokamak pathway is the one with the most science the most research, the most well understood pathway towards towards fusion. So there's a, a large research experiment in the south of France, in, international government funded, uh, called ITER in the south of France that uses um, that that it's a it's a very large tokamak device. 
and it's being built. You know, deadlines keep keep falling away a little bit, but they they anticipate turning it on in several years. I think it's about seventy nine percent complete right now, uh, and then you know going to full operations in over a decade from now. Um, but the exciting thing is that there's there's now private companies that are are replicating that, doing it faster, doing it cheaper, doing it smaller with new um, new materials. So the, the big thing that, that makes a difference in this is the magnets. The magnets are the most expensive, the most high-tech, high and the most important part of a tokamak or any sort of magnetic confinement device. And so, yeah. So let's, let's jump to, to your members a little bit, just because, yeah. you know, uh, the, I mean, you could, we could dive endlessly into the technology <laughs> and n- neither you nor I, you know, are, are, are actually developing these tokamaks. But yeah. let's, let's talk a little bit about your members. So you have 29 members, yes. uh, various parts of this fusion family tree. What kinds of approaches, what kinds of things are they doing at this moment? So some of them are building tokamaks. Yeah. Some of them are yeah. using this element, that helmet for the heating, for the reaction, yeah. And for the capture, I, I'm interested in all of these things because clearly not everything has been resolved. As you said, right now at this 2022 stage, none of these 29 members or indeed Eater or anybody else has created surplus energy right. Right. that's more than what they put into it. So yeah. we are still at the research stage. What are they all doing? Yeah. So so this is a, a good question. Well, let me highlight a few of them because I'm not going to go through the whole family tree, but um, so, uh, Commonwealth Fusion Systems, uh, based in uh, near you, actually in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, is building a uh, a experimental tokamak, uh, compact tokamak in Devons, Massachusetts, on the old Fort Devons site, uh, that will uh, prove out the more energy out than energy in when when they turn it on in 2025. It is, and that's a, still a research project, right? Because their, their commercial project. project is would be the next iteration, yeah. just to point yeah, out. And, yeah. And, and to be clear, yeah, I, I think this is important to talk about that, that the commercialization pathway for uh, most of the member companies is first, you've got to build your proof of concept machine. You know, we call this the Kitty Hawk moment. It's when the airplane flies, but not when you sell the airplane yet. You're not re- yet ready to sell. So, so then after that, you build a pilot plant and a pilot plant will have to do all of the things that a commercial uh, energy producing power plant will do. Things like generating its own fuel, things like, you know, showing that this is able to run for first hours, then weeks and months and and ultimately years, Uh, showing that it's, you can do the maintenance, you can make it uh, safe, you can, you know, get it it up and running uh, long enough that a utility will want it. So, so that's so it's that first step, spark they call it, is what CFS. Yeah. So that's Commonwealth, which, by yeah. the way, in your report, you you know you t- talk a little bit about this story. It was a pretty exciting story, both for MIT yeah. actually and for themselves, I'm sure, and for yeah. and for the industry, right? So two point eight billion in new private two investment billion. is the total for the industry, but you know yeah. this uh, uh, yeah. Commonwealth was was, was, a, was more than I mean half. it was a billion yeah yeah, yeah more it's than a billion half. dollar moment basically yeah, yeah. big deal. Um, so let's let's talk about another one. Uh, TAE Technologies, based in Southern California, is mm-hmm. pursuing a different uh, pathway and a different technology. Uh, they're doing a field reverse current, which is like a smoke ring sort of approach. Uh, and they think that, that using this, they can get to higher temperatures, which allows them to do a different fuel cycle 
proton boron instead of the deuterium tritium that kind of the mainline approaches use. It's harder, it requires higher temperatures, but they think they're on a pathway to do that. And they just closed a fundraising round literally last week of $250 million more funding. So putting putting the total, you know, making my report immediately outdated, but putting the total number. Um, well, you love that, right? If you can uh, <laughs> exactly. come with the, this kind of news, you'll, you'll update your report any, uh, you know, every month. Exactly. So we're above five billion uh, in total invested in in the industry now. Um, they're moving forward with their next generation, their Kitty Hawk moment machine that they call Copernicus. They'll be building that over the next several years and, and aiming aiming to prove that out. Uh, but another, on your on your yeah. report, yeah, exactly, because on your report you had a global map. So there, these were two U.S. players, but this yeah. is an international field, also. It's international. It is international, but it is uh, led by the United States. We have, uh, of the 33 companies that we identified around the world, 21 of them are American. I think part of that is the nature of, you know, the deep and liquid capital markets in the United States, the entrepreneurial attitudes, and, and maybe also kind of government failures as well. The fact that, that scientists were let go by um, you know, the national labs is sometimes a good catalyst for starting a, a company. But let, let's talk about an a, uh, international one, uh, General Fusion, based in Vancouver, Canada, uh, and with a contract to build their demonstration plant, their Kitty Hawk Moment plant, uh, in uh, Oxford uh, in the UK, in Cullum. Uh, and they're building this uh, as a, they're magnetized target fusion. So what they do is they take a, uh, a molten lead blanket and create a vortex in the center of it that they inject the plasma, the ionized gas, the hot ionized gas into. And then they use giant pistons to compress it, creating fusion conditions within the plasma. It's kind of almost like steampunk fusion. Uh, it's a, it's, but it's actually kind of an elegant approach that they don't require the, the, uh, huge and costly magnets, nor the huge or costly, uh, lasers. So it's kind of, I must say, Andrew, I, I love the way you describe this because, you know, you, you can get PhDs in this stuff and, right. and not be able to explain it even remotely the way you did, because you just did like 15 years of research with like 12 PhDs. And you're like, it's kind of like a steam pump. I love that. <laughs> You know, uh, I spend my. You can my see, I, you can either appreciate that or you can <laughs> scream at you for that. I'm sure. Yeah, I spend my days talking to members of Congress and congressional staff, and I, I have to tell you, the scientific literacy is not always as high as we'd hope it would be. Uh, so, so I, it be ma making it uh, simple is important. Um, well, so, okay. So now we have three different approaches. Yep. I think uh, that gives a, a, a kind of a good good overview. So one part of the story in your report is actually the the, the influx of, of, yep. of private capital recently. And then the other, you know, long-term story is this public sector support over a long time, which obviously is important to you yes. as an association in Washington wanting to, to build, uh, you know, support around this what you call the Kitty Hawk movement moment for the industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess that brings me to some of these uh, truly relevant questions. So there's an energy crisis uh, in, in various parts of the world right now, uh, yes. particularly Europe, really particularly uh, Germany. Yes. And uh, in your report, I believe you referenced something about targeting electricity production in the 
somewhere in the 2030s. Early 2030s. Onto the grid. Yes. Yes. That's the goal. What are the dependencies for that statement? Are you now assuming that Commonwealth and everybody else succeed with their uh, kind of pilot plant and then immediately move into, and we'll get to this, an enormous sort of manufacturing effort? Yeah. Or does it depend on a few other things, like you said, Congress and, 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 and permissions, and we'll, we'll talk about the policy aspect of it? Yeah, it, it, it depends on, on basically everything going right. Uh, 10 years is a really aggressive timeline. And, and so you need everything to go right and you need everything to get it, get, get going. My role. Where, where did the 10 years come from? You, I, I believe there's something, there's a phrase that I don't, it sounds a little strange, but the bold <laughs> decadal vision. That's yeah, just like a Congress good. language yeah. thing. So, so a- actually that came from the White House. So right. um, we, uh, we were invited in March of this year, March of 2022, to uh, come with a number of our member companies, a number of the leading fusion scientists from the United States, all gathered in Washington at the White House to host a summit, to talk about what needed to be done and really the promise that was coming. And so, yeah, the bold decadal vision is something that Secretary of Energy Granholm talked about, as, uh, as did others there. And, and the plan now is uh, for the Department of Energy to figure out what all of the steps within that bold decadal vision are. So there's, they're in a process right now within the Department of Energy. They've named a new fusion energy coordinator who is really doing important work. Scott Shu is his name, uh, a fusion scientist who's, who's really become a real leader in this field. And he is right now putting together the final touches on the the new public-private partnership program, which will directly invest government dollars into private companies to build the uh, Kitty Hawk moment uh, machines and then next on to those pilot plants within a decade. Uh, And then, you know, he's also, you know, talking about how to line up the whole government funded fusion program towards this really decadal plan, because you need you need everything you can't you need the companies working as fast as they can. But then there's also things that are really common across all of the companies, things like fuel supplies, you know, uh, things like materials, making sure you have materials that can survive in the extreme conditions within a. Uh, a fusion device. You know, when when you have plasma uh, at you know 100 million degrees, you got to make sure you have resilient materials for that. Uh, right, right. So I mean, th- literally, there's breakthroughs needed in yeah. order to. So yeah. once you create this energy, I mean, because I wanted to get to the risk or the safety aspect, yeah. but but literally, even the chemistry here of just producing a material that doesn't. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. react adversely to the amount of heat you're creating, and that, you can capture right. it meaningfully without, you know, either you know, melting yeah, we, or. We should or be clear when it, when when I say it's a hundred million degrees, it is a hundred million degrees, but it's not at like um, pre- extreme. It's not at, at um, you know current pressures, so it's not like it is a a giant hundred million degree fire that could consume the uh, everything around you it's it's inherently safe in that if the fusion reaction stops for any reason it turns off it you know like a candle is blown away so there there's there's no danger to the public um so can you address that a little bit for a second and mostly in 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 terms of so the nuclear 
regulatory commission is very, very important in the U.S. And let's confine our discussion to that for the moment. So this other 21 companies operating here, they would care about this. Yes. You claim as an association that there is a very big difference between fusion and fission, and basically they need to be regulated differently. Can you explain that? Is that purely for safety reasons or because they literally are very distant cousins as opposed to very proximate cousins? Just extraordinarily different in terms of the physics. The the very nature of fusion is different than fission. In a fission uh, reactor, you have a lot of fuel, right? A lot of uranium fuel that Uh, really wants to react. Once it gets going in a chain reaction, it wants to keep going. The hard thing about fission is stopping it. The hard thing about fusion is starting it, right? So that, you know, getting it started and getting it going and keeping it going is is hard. And so if you do anything to stop it, it just like that, like a candle blown out, it is stopped. There's not a lot of fuel within the chamber. There's only fuel in inside the chamber for very short amount of, of time. So you have to it, you have to keep constantly injecting fuel into the chamber. So if any sort of what the NRC calls an off normal event happens, an accident. If an accident happens, there's only a very limited amount of fuel that could that could react and you know be released into the external environment. So and, it, and this fuel, to be clear, in most cases is tritium, it's, right? It's deuterium With, tritium. And, and so there's, there's fuel that can be released. And then also because it's, you know, deuterium and tritium interact with the, um, the first walls, there can be activated materials. So, so other sort of materials that, that exist as dust in there. And so they could go right. out into the environment. Yeah, so this would be these neutron-induced uh, yeah. radioactivity uh, challenges on the tokamaks walls yeah, so, itself. Yeah, it's it's not that there's nothing, right? Uh, it's just that there's these are things that we deal with that you know in the United States all the time. Research accelerators have similar profiles. Uh, medical isotope facilities, you know, facilities that make isotopes for medical in- imaging or cancer treatment or such like that, things that exist inside hospitals have a similar risk profile. And fortunately, there is a, within NRC code, there's the byproduct material uh, code, is what they call part 30, NCFR part 30 for, you know, if you want to get out your legal books. Uh, and what it says is uh, that you can, you know, this this risk is different than fission, and it's more flexible. It doesn't. It's not as. Um, it's not something that really slows innovation or would be um, very difficult to to get things built and moving. It's incredibly important for the sector to have the certainty that we're going to be able to build and then build at scale. Because like you said, this is a, this is a, a, a thing when we get to pilot plant stage and, you know, first of a kind and beyond, we can't just be building one of these. We can't just be citing these, you know, one here or there. And because the, the challenges are so huge, the energy crisis, you know, dependence on imported gas or oil for, from, um, you know, unfriendly regimes, 
And then, of course, the climate crisis is urgent. So I want I want to get to all of these things in a second because we haven't really talked about what amounts of energy could yeah. potentially be yielded by this. And yeah. it's easy to delude oneself when you talk about the ultimate energy source and talking about it being endless and boundless that people assume that once we crack these little problems that, yes, will take a decade or maybe some people still think it will take 30, then everything is solved. But um Let's just take one thing at a time. What, what is the status of the regulatory discussion in the U.S.? There, there's a vote in December. What is that all about and what will happen then? Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've been uh, engaged in a public process with, with the NRC uh, for over two years now. And you can find it on the NRC's website. You can see all of the things that, that we've uh, submitted to them and talked about in, in terms of risk. And now they're in a, the NRC staff is in a kind of a heads down moment where they're writing what they call the SECI paper. And that'll give options to the commission. The commission is the politically appointed five members uh, of both political parties who uh, vote on, uh, on options for the, from the, the uh, for nuclear regulation. So the NRC will the NRC commissioners will hear from us in uh, November, uh, November 8th, actually. And then they'll have to consider all of the submissions and the testimony and everything like that and, and then vote on it uh, to determine where and, and how fusion should be regulated. And then, you know, they'll There'll be a lot of details after as well. But. but but interestingly, I mean, you said the U.S. is the leader, but the U.K. already has yeah. such a regulatory system. So they are ahead of the U.S. from that particular perspective. In, in uh, just actually miles ahead of the U.S. and everyone else around the world in terms of setting up the fusion regulatory structure in an innovation-friendly approach. Uh, it was included in the energy security bill uh, and is just just I think it's passed officially now, um, but they've they've got regulatory certainty now, and it's really attractive for. How, uh, what do you attribute that difference in timing to? I mean, the U.S. does never like to be second. Uh, I attribute in it anything. To, yeah, you know, they, there's there's some who say you know comparative politics. You could say the U.K. is like an elected dictatorship. The prime minister down. Uh, it's much easier to move. The United States is a huge battleship. The U.S. government has so many different competing parts and, you know, separation of power and different agencies, even within the executive branch and uh, all of this sort of stuff. That there, there are so many veto points that even if the president tomorrow said, I want I want fusion as soon as possible and get me a regulatory structure. It would take years. It's just a, a different political system in just a different way. I do think, though, that once the U.S. government is pointed in the right direction and is moving in that, there's, there's nothing else in the world that has the, the state capacity to actually get things, things done like the U.S. government. So, I mean, think about various sorts of whether Apollo program, Manhattan Project, more recently, the, the COVID vaccines, all this sort of stuff that, that you know, the U.S. So, so let's take that to, uh, to the next level then uh, as, a, as a way to, to get to, to kind of the future outlook for, for this thing. You, you mentioned earlier that the manufacturing challenge yeah. is interesting and it's going to be big. 
Yeah. How big and and I guess why is the question? So if these enormous amounts of energy are generated from just one tokamak, why would we need so many of them? And how on earth is that going to happen? I mean, you're potentially talking about a whole new industry. We're not just talking about adding something to the grid. You're you're talking about physical infrastructure regulated in a certain way and then producing new types of material that are highly resistant to shocks and pressures and temperatures and a delivery system to get it onto the grid and 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 like you said some decentralized way to yeah. put the energy wherever it's going to be used what what is the challenge there really well i mean let, let's first of all start from the fact that that the whole energy system is an extraordinarily complex system and, and it's not like if you went back a hundred years and said you know an oil and coal and natural gas based system would be easy to set up. It took a tremendous amount of infrastructure to to put in what we have now. So replacing that, because we need to, because of the climate challenge, uh, we need to replace as much of it as possible right now with renewables and then going forward with clean, safe, sustainable fusion. So to do that will be a tremendous challenge. It's going to be, uh, you know, think about the scale. In the United States alone, it is a $1 trillion in industry in energy. And it's about, I think, about a terawatt, uh, uh, one terawatt of capacity in terms of electricity generation. And so a terawatt, think about that, is the big nuclear power plants are about a gigawatt. So that's that a gigawatt versus a terawatt is not 1%, it's 0.1%. So, so you need to, to start replacing those things. And so, you know, our companies are aiming not at the gigawatt scale power plants, but more at 300 to 500, you know, different, different geometries have different target markets. Some are, some are looking at 50 megawatts, you know, it's just about mark, product market fit and, and stuff like that. And there's different, different places that, that different sizes work. But again, the scaling portion is, is really important. And what I think we, we need to think about this and the analog here is not looking at other energy systems, but looking at manufactured products. Think about, you know, aerospace or even cars. You know, in aerospace, the, uh, the Boeing uh, supply line runs two 737s a day off of that. And that's just a huge undertaking you know, at the technical level, at the supplier base level, resources level to get this going. But as we see from, you know, going back to the, the dawn of manufacturing it with the, the Ford uh, production line model, when you get on a production line, you know, learning by doing and the, the sort of economies of scale, you can drive down costs really fast. And that's fundamentally different than the uh, energy systems we have today, where the costs are mostly not based on the infrastructure, they're based on the fuel. And this is a really important thing. So when, when it's based on the fuel, it's based on oil or natural gas or you know, such like that. When, when you are, then it's, you know, where do you get the fuel? Who controls it? Where is it from? And, and how does the price go up and down? But when it's a manufactured product, the fuel for, for fusion we talked about is deuterium and tritium. Really, it's, it's um, deuterium and lithium because the tritium will have to be generated on site by interactions with the lithium wall. 
talk about that. So, Andrew, I mean, that brings me to a lot of sort of geopolitical questions. <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to talk about the true future here, like the yeah. distant future as well. But can you address that for a second? Because geopolitically, if you can't control this by controlling who has access to the fuel, yeah. how on earth can you control this once the cat's out of the bag? Like once, uh, you know, even three to five of your 29 member companies are producing these things, let's call it at like 300 megawatt scale, now everyone can get one. And it's a very, very different energy game than today. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, if you can, if energy, access to energy is no longer about geography or geopolitics, but instead is based on, you know, your ability to have a manufactured uh, good, it's something that will just you know, increasingly add more and more energy into the system. You know, it, it, we, it means that we can bring in the billion people around the world who have no assured access to electricity day to day. It means that we can drive down the prices of electricity very significantly. Now, now let me be clear. The first ones, the first uh, fusion power plants will have to compete in a marketplace that, you know, might not be super favorable to them. And the first ones are likely to be expensive, as with any manufactured product. Think about your, your plasma TVs that you've got up on your wall. You know, just 15 years ago, those were $10,000 each. But, you know, costs go down and, you know, same thing for cars, same thing for airplanes and, and all the rest. So uh, it's it, driving down the price is important. Can you That's paint the, that picture for us a little bit? So. Let's say things go to plan here with this decadal vision. So you get some amount on the grid, which essentially just means, you know, you, you'll hit this milestone if before like 2035, yep. one of these 29 companies or 31, whatever it actually is globally, yep. gets a plant to submit some amount of energy straight yep. onto the grid. Now, that does not mean that there's 500 no. of these. It means no, there's no. one of them that's onto the grid. What is conceivably the next path of this yeah, economy well, of scale? How so, quickly, like what would decide whether it's going to be 5% of the energy within the end of that decade or if it's going to be 20? Yeah, it's scaling. It's it's how fast you can scale. So it's, it's supply lines and it's workforce and it is political will and public will. Do people want these? Is there a demand for them? Or is this something that, you know, we see how many, you know, stories of NIMBY uh, people saying, oh, don't put this solar plant in this desert, it might harm this tortoise. Or, you know, I don't want those wind farms nearby, they cause cancer. (laughs) Or, you know, anything's like that. They don't cause cancer, by the way. Uh, What is your current projection on the geography of these things? I mean, the test uh, things, obviously, test facilities of any kind, you try to keep it out of an yeah. urban area generally yeah but but there's no there's no uh, reason that you, these can't be you know generally centralized the other thing to note is that these actually are you talk about the the massive change in is in infrastructure but we're going through a massive change in infrastructure with the the dawn of renewables going onto the grid solar and wind mean that you have to build new electricity transmission lines that bring you know, electricity from where it's sunny and where it's windy to places where people are. You know, the nice thing about fusion is you can kind of plug and play into the existing grid. You can 
you know, close down a coal power plant and then put a, a fusion uh, core right there and really use a lot of the same systems, a lot of the same interconnections, all at the same place. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it makes life a bit easier for the utilities. And so, you know, the dawn of the fusion, fusion age, people won't, won't really feel much of a difference. It'll feel the same. You'll be able to, you'll get electricity out of the wall, just like you do today. You know, ultimately, we hope that prices will start going down fairly quickly. But, you know, at the dawn, you won't, you won't feel a difference. You won't see a difference, but you'll start to, we'll start to be able to close down the last of the, uh, the fossil fuel plants and, and move towards this zero carbon clean energy future. But let's get a little further out, actually, because once you start getting to a place where energy, where fusion energy is separated, you know, between the environmental impacts from the social good that is energy, you can do a lot of things. You can do things like um, clean zero carbon fuels. You can, you know, you can make uh, plug and play fuels that go into your your cars or the, the you know, the, the hard to decarbonize areas. You can use the heat provided by fusion as a way for all sorts of uh, chemical and industrial processes. You know, you look at the, the graphs of, of, you know, things to decarbonize, and a third of that is industrial stuff. So chemicals and, you know, all the stuff in a, in a modern economy, even cement. Cement's really hard. Uh, it's really high temperatures needed, but you know, if there's, there's, yeah, thing. I mean, cement, alu aluminum, any sort of yeah. smelting of metals, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, so talk to me for a second about the big, big future. I mean, the space economy is kind yeah. of taking off in a sort of like on a, in a parallel track here. In almost all the sci-fi movies where I can recall, they talked about how they were propelling their spaceships. They are driven and powered by fusion. And there's yeah. a reason for that, obviously. W when yeah. are we going to see, uh, you know, Mars travel powered by fusion? Look, I mean, it, it, we, have, we have companies who are uh, very focused on uh, rocket propulsion, fusion rocket propulsion as the way. The, what this really does is it opens up the entire solar system to... Uh, exploration. Uh, it means that, you know, instead of Mars being, what, a year and a half trip or something like that, it turns it into a week's or month's trip. It means that you can access the moon in shuttles, you know, back and forth. It means that you can, um, it means that satellites in orbit can not be stationary in orbit, but can move. And that's important for, you know, either visual observations, but it's also important for national security interests as, you know, space becomes a more of a contested um, place between the United States, China and other, you know, global strategic competitors. It's important that your, your you know, key space infrastructure is not a sitting duck. And, you know, so, so then you can start having you know, access to the asteroid belt. What's, what are the resources of the asteroid belt? Just huge mining resources. What are the, what things will we learn about the moons of Saturn and Jupiter? You know, we don't know, but, but there's a lot of interesting stuff up there and, and having access to it that back and forth is, uh, you know, going to be a game changer. Andrew, these are these are exciting prospects. I yep. want you to see if you could sort of summarize this uh, this story for me a little bit. So, we are at the dawn, perhaps, for real. Right. 
of the emergence of or of fusion energy as a realistic energy source. Right. What What, what is your main message about this? What should uh, you know? I don't know. Young people who are looking into technologies, or or indeed, you know, any sort of informed member of society. What What is it that we all can do and uh you know when we're thinking about fusion in in terms of how it's going to shape our lives what what should we be thinking of and what is our yeah. role here yeah look I as mean, non-experts yeah first of all what i'd say is that fusion is inevitable it will be the future energy source in the long term it's what the universe wants to do look at look at all the stars in the sky and everything that that's all fusion it's inevitable whether we get it in our lifetimes is dependent on us though and so what should the public do? What should uh, excited people do? First of all, there's a huge amount of jobs available in our companies. They're not able to find uh, enough engineers, enough plasma physicists, enough even, you know, people who want to build things. Uh, so, you know, that, that's number one. Number two is it's just it's demand. You know, politics works by people saying, I want this. Uh, and so it's going and talking to your local, you know, members of Congress, your mayors, your, uh, you know, state government officials when, you know, things are coming, you know, it's already happening in Massachusetts. It's already happening in Washington state, Wisconsin, Southern California, other places. People are, are hearing about this and, and communities are getting engaged. It needs, it, it's going to be more and more as the industry grows. So, you know, people just have to have to come out and want this and want to want to be involved and, and be excited for it. We've we've got we've set up a, a fusion energy caucus in the Congress. It's a bipartisan group, about I think 60 or so members of Congress right now. It's open for anybody. So, you know, go ask your member of Congress. Why aren't they a member of the fusion caucus? And, and they should join. It's a, a way for them to learn more. So stuff like Andrew, that. Andrew, I, I don't want to end on, on a critical note, uh, apart from the fact that I'm curious, what is Earth's plan B if fusion, for any of the reasons we've talked about, takes longer than a decade to kind of become a, a, a relevant prospect? Hey, look, what do we do as a civilization if this turns out for any number of reasons to maybe not be a decadal project, but it actually takes 25 years? Let's just modestly say that there's this possibility that that could happen. Yeah, what hey, look, are we going to do then? Yeah, and, and it could be longer. If, if we don't make the investments now, we're, we'll still be on that, that fusion never pathway. I think we're, we're beyond that. We're moving quickly now. But, you know, there's speed bumps in the way and things could happen. But, but hey, look, it, it is, um, there is multiple pathways towards decarbonization. There are different futures associated with those. I, I think a 100% renewables future is fundamentally more expensive and more difficult and, you know, leads to kind of a low energy future. I think a high energy future, high energy but low pollution future is one where we can, you know, all benefit from the bounties of, uh, of energy and, and modern civilization. So, so I think that's worth working for. But look, if nothing happens, if neither we get to, you know, way more renewables than we have now or fusion or any sort of other zero carbon source, the future is suffering. And let's be clear about that. Climate change is real, is getting worse and is going to cause a lot more impacts uh, around the world. You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning, I worked at the American Security Project. 
the other thing I worked on there on, on energy was, was on the, how the military is planning for climate change. And so there's certain things you can do to harden your bases to sea level rise and to prevent, uh, you know, small conflicts from turning into big ones. But when you get into a world where millions of people are on the move because their homes no longer sustain their lives, that's a world that is really not possible for the American military to, to keep secure. It's a world in which you have to fundamentally change what security means. And you have to, you know, really think about a, a it's a world of, of more conflicts, more wars, and just not a future we want to be involved in. So let's work to to get that zero carbon world. I think fusion's the the solution. Other people are out there saying, you know, their thing is the solution as well. I think we need need all of them. Let's be clear on that. We need we need all of them working all together, and then let let it let the market compete and figure out which one's the best. I think fusion will win in the end, but you know, uh, we need we need to to get that zero carbon world going. Otherwise, the future really is suffering. Andrew, thank you so much. I mean, these are these are kind of daunting uh, uh, prospects, but uh, but they're they're also real, right? Because yeah. I, and I and I like to maybe end there because emerging technology is not just a sweet, you know, happy story about innovators in their little garages, right? I think right. this particular technology is not something that a smart person in a garage can get away with. Like we're, we're talking consequences, we're talking investments, we're talking infrastructure. These are debates. These are yep. policy regulated technologies and they are consequential whether they happen now or later. Thank you so much for enlightening us with, uh, with this. It's uh, it's hefty stuff, Andrew. It was a great conversation, Tron. Thank thank you for for your your deep questions and and uh, willingness to get into it. Well, a great pleasure. Let's have you on when we have some some new news. Yeah, uh, <laughs> right. hopefully soon. Okay, take care. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with host Tronan Unheim, futurist and author. Please check out futurist.org store where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or a partner of the podcast, or request a podcast swap. You can even buy a few of Tron's books such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from below. Please also check out trondunheim.com, which is a website with links to other podcasts and as well as public appearances. The topic in this episode of Futurized was the emergence of fusion energy. My takeaway is that fusion will indeed eventually come onto the grid and it seems that it will eventually solve the energy crisis, perhaps indefinitely, but at least for centuries. It might propel us to Mars and beyond, but before that it will allow us to stem climate change, which is no small feat. We just got to get it off the ground. It might not be around uh, within a decade, as many hope, but it shouldn't be 30 years away anymore. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. And if you do like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 157 on energy system transformation. Please share this show with those you care about. And finding us on social media is easy because we are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.